All right, ladies, welcome. So we're continuing uh, the study of the Tehillim, of David HaMelech, Alav HaShalom. And uh, we're moving right along. We're up to chapter 85. <laughs> Can't get out of that. Uh, <laughs> they have a lot to say. So again, when it comes to these Mizmorim of Bnei Korah, there's different interpretations. Either these are descendants of Korah, and they actually wrote the Mizmor, and that follows the opinion that the Tehillim has different authors. It's not only David HaMelech, he's not the exclusive, he's the majority, but you have Bnei Korah. Some will explain that, no, David actually wrote all the chapters, but he gave certain... Uh, compositions to uh, different people to sing and to play. So therefore that would be... Well, look at that. Okay, great. So that would be a uh, a different interpretation. Regardless, uh, it's the composition or the song that's related to the uh, descendants of Korah. Mizmor, and it's a song. Now the uh, context, in order to appreciate this chapter... (coughs) There's different approaches. We're going to take the approach of Radak and some of the other major commentators uh, that learn that this Mizmor is penned after the Galut of Bavel. Let's just review some Jewish history. So we have uh, a Bet HaMikdash. It was built by King Solomon and it lasted for 410 years. And then it was destroyed. It was actually... Uh, pulverized, uh, a terrible destruction uh, by the Babylonian Empire. That's Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his ilk. And they exiled the Jewish people outside of Eretz Israel to the north, to Bavel. Now, Galut Bavel was not a long Bav- uh, exile. It was relatively short. It only lasted 70 years. And then we made our way back, Ezra Sofer. Uh, brought the Jewish people back, whoever wanted to come back with him, but most people did not want to come back to Eretz Israel. They got comfortable in Bavel. It was a bad time. There was a lot of assimilation. The Jewish people were on a low spiritual level, and Israel HaSofer had to threaten the people, you know, to come back. He said, if the Kohanim don't come back, you're fired. Like, you know, like uh, Reagan had to fire all the air traffic controllers. So Israel uh, HaSofer said, that's it. You don't come back now, you don't have a job. And there was a <clears throat> struggle to get everybody to come back to Eretz Israel, whoever did. And then they built the second Beit HaMikdash. Did they come back? They back? came back. Not everybody. Oh, not everybody. No, not at all. Oh. A lot of people stayed back. Uh, it's almost like today, you know. Today, today you have a chance to go to Israel. Right. We're, we're comfortable here at the well. We're no, <laughs> get on a plane and go to Israel. So we're fine. We're fine here in King's Highway. We don't have a problem. There's no need to go to Jerusalem. We'll visit. It's a good place to visit. And that's what they said in those days. And <clears throat> so this chapter over here is written now, when we come back to Eris Israel at the time of the second exile, and we build the second Beit HaMikdash. So it's in during that period, between the exile of Bavel and then the uh, rebuilding of the second Beit HaMikdash. So let's, let's see what he has to say. Ratzita Adonai Artsecha. So God, you uh, were appeased with your land which he wasn't appeased, obviously, when he destroyed it at the time of the destruction of Galut Bevel, uh, but 
After the galut was over, Ratzita, you reached the level of appeasement. Shavta Shevit Yaakov. And you return. Shavta is Lashuv. Shevit Yaakov, the returning of Yaakov. So we return. Now, mind you, Yaakov Abinu has two names, Yaakov and Yisrael. Yaakov is the name that represents the Jews on a low level. And therefore the, the Pasuk is telling us that when we came back, it was Shivut Yaakov, or Shivit Yaakov. It wasn't Yisrael. We were on a lower level. Nasata avon amecha. You carried the sin of your nation. Kisita kol hatatam sela. And you actually covered their sins. What does that mean, you covered their sins? So the Mefarshim say over here that, that even though there was sins amongst the Jewish people, God, so to speak, closed his eyes to the sins of the people and he, he overlooked them. But there's another interpretation uh, based on the Gemara. The Gemara and the Midrash writes that every Yom Kippur, Bode Olam takes out his uh, scales and he says, okay, all the mitzvot jump on the right side and all the avirot go on the left side. And Satan can't wait to load up the scales with the avirot of Bnei Israel. And a lot of times they tilt the scale in favor of sin. And then all of a sudden the Satan turns his head and he comes back and where the sins go. And all of a sudden we see the scales are tilted in our favor. And uh, the Pasuk says that Nasata avon amecha, when God is carrying the sins of his people, what does he do? Kisita kol hatatam. He, he covers them. That means, it says in the Midrash, he takes the sins and he buries them under the ground. And Satan comes back and says, what kind of business? Where are all those sins? Well, disappeared, abracadabra. And explanation, where did they disappear? And the rabbis tell us that when a person makes teshuvah, so the teshuvah has the ability to turn a sin from an intentional sin to an unintentional sin. That's a mishogig. Mishogig is a mistake. And you don't get punished for mistakes. So therefore, when we make the Shuvan Yom Kippur, uh, the sin is downgraded. Now look at the Pasuk, it's beautiful. Because it says, Nasata avon amecha. Originally the sin is called avon. But then it says, Kisita kol hatatam. The avon becomes a chet. Avon is an intentional sin. Chet is an unintentional sin. So when God is carrying the sins of his people on the scale, all of a sudden... The people make teshuvah, and those sins are now not considered malicious anymore in intent. They're considered a, a mistake. It's an aberration. It was an accident. And God doesn't punish for accidents. And therefore, we get, uh, we get uh, 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 a favorable judgment. But on a, on a national level, it's saying that when God came uh, in the time of, um, in the, time of uh, the, uh, uh, the, second, the second temple... He, uh, the land was forgiven, so to speak. God was appeased, and he returned us, and he carried our sins. Asafta kol evratecha. Now, what does this mean? You collected evratecha. You know what evra is? Evra means anger. You gathered your anger. Heshevota meharon apecha. And you returned from haron af. Haron af is the, the anger that uh, literally comes out of the person's nose. You know, when a person is angry, they say he's fuming. And therefore, now we make a prayer to God. Talking about, now that you took us out of the first exile, now redeem us from the exile that we're in presently. God, return us. The word hafer 
means to nullify, like somebody would nullify a vow. We call that hafara. So we're saying, God, if you vowed to be angry at us, you know, for forever, hafer We're asking you to nullify your anger. And then we ask God in in um, <coughs> in a in a question rhetorically. God, are you going to be angry at us forever? Enough means to be angry. Is your anger going to be uh, lasting uh, for for generations? Hello. After all, we're asking you, God, uh, to return and give us give us life. Now, even though we have uh, physical life, but we know that uh, in exile, the spiritual life is compromised, and therefore we're asking God to rejuvenate us. They should bring us back to the high levels of spirituality that we were in the times of the first Beit And when that happens and God sends us to Mashiach, the nation will be happy and rejoice in you. Dear God, show us your kindness and your redemption please provide for us. And at that point, at that point, we will be able to uh, to hear what God, the messages of God. Uh, God will give us messages of peace. Hasidav is referring to even the nations of the world. There's a, a, a general principle that says that God, when Mashiach comes, not only is going to redeem the Jewish people, but it's also called Hasidei Umot Ta'olam. Those Jews that, those Goyim, that were favorable to the Jewish people during the exile, like in the Holocaust, we have those people that risk their lives, and you have the Goyim that keep the seven Noahide laws. So they're called Hasidav. Hasidav is the Hasidei Umot So David HaMelech says, Ki yidaber shalom el amo. When Mashiach comes, he's going to speak peace to his people, Bel Hasidav. Hasidav is referring to not his people, but the nations of the world. And we will not uh, turn back to uh, folly. Once Mashiach comes, that'll be, that'll be done. That uh, we pray to God that the redemption should be Karov, as opposed to Rahok. We hope that his redemption will be Karov. And this is what we want to stop here and talk now. And we ask you, God, when you're going to redeem us, lishkon kavod ba'arsenu. And you will once again be shochen kavod, you will, uh, uh, your presence will be amongst us in our land. Now what does this mean? In the time of the second Beit HaMikdash, was not the presence of God amongst us? Why are we praying for the third Beit HaMikdash, as if now in the second Beit HaMikdash, it sounds like we're saying the Shekhinah is not amongst us. And so we're praying for the third Beit HaMikdash, and at that point, Lishkon Kavod Be'artzenu. So I refer to you uh, a Gemara, and this Gemara is in Yoma on page 21b. And it says that there were five things that were absent in the second temple that were present in the first temple. And what is that? Number one, the holy ark with the Kiruvim. You know, in the first Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy of Holies, there was an ark, and there was cherubs on top. That was one of the most important pieces of furniture. That was not present in the second temple. Number two, 
the heavenly fire which descended upon the altar. Every day, the Kohanim would put wood on the Mizbeach. But a miracle happened that a fire would come from heaven and consume the Korban. That miracle stopped in the times of the Second Temple. Number three, the Shekhinah, this is what we just read now, the Divine Presence left. Number four, Ruach HaKodesh and prophecy left. That means at a certain point in the Beit HaMikdash, early on, there was no more prophecy, which is a great tragedy. Now we did not have anybody to uh, tell us, you know, what does God want from us? What is the solution to our problems? The cherubs. Cherubs. Wasn't that the second destruction when you said after the destruction you saw the people of the camp? Oh, you're so, you're so smart. You're so smart. And, 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 and where, where, where are the cherubs if, 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 if they weren't? So what it means to say is they weren't on the Aron. They had cherubs just sitting on the, on the floor. They weren't on the Aron itself. Cherubs were on the floor. You have a good memory. That's not bad. Nice try. You thought you, thought you catch me. But, but no, it's good memory. So anyway, what happens is there was, no, there was no prophecy. Now, in those days, where did they get their advice from? From the men of the Great Assembly. There was a new parliament that was created of 120 members. It was called the Knesset. I mean, I hate to say that uh, there's any connection between the modern-day Knesset. Uh, this is uh, the only thing they have in common is the, the number of people that were in both bodies. That Knesset was made up of 120 rabbis. And the Knesset, I think, in Israel is made up of 120 uh, non-rabbis. And, and the point is, but they call it the Knesset. I think it's the Knesset the Ketana, and that was Knesset the Gedola. It's another difference. Anyway, they became the... Um, the advisors of the Jewish people, and no longer could they give advice through prophecy, but they gave advice through the chokmah of the Torah, which is not as, uh, it's not as easy. You, know, you don't get the revelation like a prophet does. It has to come through chokmah. And then the fifth... I just don't understand the timeline. Megillat root was after this time. Go slow, go slow. Megillat root is before Shilomu HaMelech. Go slow, Robertson. Megillat root is Shilomu's grandmother. So that's before the first temple. It's before even the temple was built. It's before, 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 way before. Then the Ruth had a grandson called Shilomo, David. David had a son, Shilomo. He built the first temple. Ruth was actually in the time of Shilomo. She, King Solomon made a chair. She sat in the chair. The mother queen. And then Shilomo's temple lasted for 410 years. And then it was destroyed. And we went into exile for 70 years. That's Galut Bavel. Then we came back and built the second temple with Ezra Sofer. And I'm telling you now that it was not as glorious as the first temple. It did not have five things that were present in the first temple. And one of them was uh, prophecy. The fifth one was the Unim Vitumim. The Kohen Gadol used to wear a breastplate and had the stones. And when you needed to ask a question, you'd communicate to the Kohen and the stones would start lighting up and would send messages from, from, uh, from above. So that means of communication also uh, was absent at the times of the second temple. And that's why in this pasuk, it says when you're going to build the third Beit HaMikdash, Nishkon Kavod Be'artzeni. Now this brings us to a very, very important talk that uh, I'm bringing to your uh, attention this afternoon. I chose to talk about it today because I think it fits in with this pasuk and because... Uh, by the next time that we meet next Wednesday, we'll be already in the middle of the holiday of Hanukkah. And uh, I don't want to uh, 
you know, you'd miss these ideas going into the holiday. So now that we're still Erev, 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 I'll be able to communicate some ideas that are related to the chapter and related to the great holiday, the holiday of lights that will be upon us. Uh, Amen. So there's an old question regarding the mitzvah of Hanukkah. I know you learned in third grade that they found enough oil and uh, they found enough oil to last one night. And the miracle of miracles, instead of only lasting one night, it lasted uh, eight nights. And hence the eight days of Hanukkah. And there's a great rabbi called Rabbi Yosef Karo. He wrote a book called The Bet Yosef. And he asks the famous question. Uh, in yeshivas, this is the main talk on Hanukkah. The question of the Bet Yosef. And his question is that if they had enough oil for the first day, so there was really no miracle on the first day. So if there was no miracle on the first day, it was only a miracle on the subsequent seven days. Why is that Hanukkah an eight-day holiday? It should be a seven-day holiday. That's the major question. He gives three answers. I'm not going to tell you his answers. I and Cham go look. When I was young, I had a book that provided a hundred answers to the question. It's called Ned Lemea'ah. And then somebody recently gave me a book that has 500 answers to the, to the question. So basically, whatever you say probably is an answer because it's just, I mean, it turns out that, you know, such a good question turned out that it wasn't such a good question because it's so easy to answer. There's 500 ways uh, to get around it. But that is the question on Hanukkah. So I recently saw a very novel answer. It's written by a rabbi uh, called Aruch HaShulchan, uh, Rabbi Epstein. And Aruch HaShulchan says something very, very fascinating. He brings it from the book called Sefer Hashmonaim. And he writes that the year of Hanukkah, which happens, oh, uh, history, history time. In the first Beit HaMikdash, second Beit HaMikdash, it started in the Galut of Parasu Madai. That's the beginning of the second Beit HaMikdash. That's Paras. That's uh, Haman, uh, Hashverosh, and all those creepy guys in the Parasu Madai. That was the beginning of the second Beit HaMikdash. As a matter of fact, if you could believe it, there was a gate on the eastern side of the temple called the Shushan Gate. And there was an image of Shushan, Shushan Habira, the capital of, one of the, the capital of, of, of Paras. Now, why would the architects of the Beit HaMikdash build a, uh, an image on a door, a, a gate called Shushan Gate? And the explanation is because the Persians wanted to remind the Jewish people when they come to the Beit HaMikdash that they're under, we're under their dominion. That would be, you know, similar that we have a, oh, maybe not at this place. Oh, you have a flag. I'm talking about Okay, so... Uh, you know, that would be a, the American flag in the shul. So, well, the American flag, not the United Nations, but the American flag doing in the shul. Now, the Americans don't obligate us to put a flag in the shul. Uh, Moshe Feinstein actually said, you're not allowed to put a flag in the shul because uh, it's Hashem's house. So you're showing what, somebody else has sovereignty besides God? And the fact that there's an eagle, that's another question. If you're allowed to put images, uh, we can question uh, putting flags in the shul another day. You'll ask your local rabbi. But, uh, but that's a similar item. Uh, imagine the government would force you to put a flag in the shoe so you remember you're in America and therefore you have to be loyal to the... Uh, so that's what they did in the Beit HaMikdash. They made a special gate called the Shushan Gate. So everybody remembers you're under the uh, dominion of Shushan Abira and Paras. That was in the beginning of the Second Temple. And then Paras and I faded away like everybody 
eventually fades away. And the Jews always, uh, you know, we always remain, and then there's another guy who comes to prosecute us, uh, to persecute us. The last 180 years of the Second Temple, that's when Yavan came in. That's when the Greeks came in. So again, the story of Hanukkah takes place in the last 180 years of the Beit HaMikdash. The Second Beit HaMikdash, incidentally, lasted for 420 years. How are you going to remember that the first Beit HaMikdash lasted 410 years and the second Beit HaMikdash lasted 420 years? Now, one way to remember it is, remember, 410 and 420, that's it. That's the easy way of remembering it. But people have a hard time remembering things without a mnemonic. So I'll tell you what the Bala Turim said. Ba'asudi Mikdash, and you will build for me a temple. Veshachanti betocham. Says the Bala Turim. Veshachanti means I will dwell amongst you. Take the word Veshachanti. Veshachan... T, and I will dwell, T, T is Tafyud, Tafyud is 410, so Veshachan, T, that's how you remember it, I will dwell, T, Tafyud. Now, how you know the second temple? Take the word Veshachan, T, and take out the letters Vesheni, and the word Veshachan, T, take the Vav, the Sheen, the Nun, what letters are you left with? A Chaf and a Taf, a Chaf and a Taf is 420, so they were Veshachan, T, is 420, Veshini, Chaf, so therefore the name is actually in the Torah, to the two temples. So at the end of the second temple, that's when the Greeks, uh, the Greeks came involved. Says the Sefer Hashmonaim, that that year, I guess it was such a tumultuous year in the temple when the Greeks came in and started wreaking havoc, we weren't able to bring the sacrifices of Sukkot. Sukkot is a big, big holiday in the temple. They bring sacrifices, 70 sacrifices they bring. It's a very, very busy time. That year, they couldn't celebrate Sukkot. Now hold on to your seats. Says the Aruch HaShulchan that since we couldn't celebrate the eight days of Sukkot, so therefore they made up another eight-day holiday called the eight days of Hanukkah. And that's the way he answers the question, which means you're right. The, 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 the miracle of the, of the oil was not a, an eight-day miracle. So why are you doing eight days? To commemorate the eight days of Sukkot that were uh, suspended or canceled that year. So it's like uh, we, have a, uh, we have a make-up date. Uh, now I am uh, interested in this because there's a Gemara that says there's a mahlokit between Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel, how to light the menorah. You remember the mahlokit? Mm-hmm. Bet Hillel says you light going up. On the first day you light one, then two, then three, then four, like we do. And what does Bet Shammai say? You go, start from eight. And you go down, eight, seven, six. So it's like anticlimactic. You know, by the time you get to the last day of the holiday, there's one, one measly candle left. Uh, it's like a little, little strange. So, but the Gemara wants to understand, hey, Betile, we understand your logic. I mean, you just go up. But what's the logic of Betchamai? So he says something, something so odd. It corresponds, it corresponds the animals that they brought on Sukkot. If you know how they brought the animals on Sukkot, on the first day, they brought 13 animals, then 12, then 11, then 10. So just like we see on Sukkot that they descended in the order, so we descended on Hanukkah. And everybody reads like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's what we're doing. And I'm asking, how random is this? Just because on Sukkot, they went in descending order, what is the connection between Sukkot and Hanukkah? I mean, apparently, there's no connection, no apparent connection between these two holidays, just because you found... Uh, 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 a system that descends, so therefore you applied it to Hanukkah. Well, now that I saw the Sifr Hashmonaim, I'm very happy. 
Because now that they're saying that the eight days of Hanukkah are actually corresponding to the makeup, eight days of Sukkot that they did not fulfill that year, I understand where Bet is coming from. Why he applied a Sukkah law or Sukkot law to Hanukkah. Could be also saw this, uh, this connection. So very good. So now, now, now you know uh, one answer. So you have 499 left. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of them today. But we're going to focus on this one. So my question on this answer, which I think is a cute answer. I never heard it before till recently. My question is, all right, fine. But that explains why we had Hanukkah the subsequent year. The next year after we got the temple back and we inaugurated. So we needed to make a, a, a makeup for, uh, for Sukkot. So we did eight days. But how does that explain... I mean, this year we had Sukkot, I'm assuming. Everybody had Sukkot this year. So we don't need a makeup for Sukkot anymore. So how do you explain this answer to explain the subsequent holidays of Hanukkah that are really not coming to make up uh, uh, Sukkot anymore? That only explains the first year. And anyway, if I can ask a stronger question, how does that work? You mentioned correctly Pesach Sheni. I'm well aware of Pesach Sheni. The olden days... Whoever wasn't able to celebrate Pesach on the first holiday, so you had a makeup. Today, there's no Pesach Shini. Whoever didn't go to Miami the first Pesach, they go a month later. That's not Pesach Shini. But the question is, there's no Sukkot Shini. There's no Sukkot Shini. You miss Sukkot, you miss Sukkot. There's no makeup for that. But all of a sudden that year, they said, oh, we're going to have a makeup for Sukkot. Eight days of Hanukkah will be, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the holiday. Now, I saw beautiful Remez. Just to show it, there must be a connection because uh, you have a homash, a stone homash over there. Any homash on the back shelf there? You, you know, in the in the book of uh, Vayikra, in Vayikra, in Parashat Emor, it tells us the holidays. It goes to all the holidays of the year, and the last holiday that it mentions in that system is Sukkot. No, no homash over there. Maybe on that side. Anyway, oh, there you go. Beautiful. Vaikra? No, it's Bereshit. Okay, Bereshit. Vaikra. Beautiful. Great, ladies. Wonderful. Sorry, I didn't bring my equipment. If you look in, uh, in Parashat Emor, you'll see something very, uh, very fascinating. Here, it, all the holidays are here. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, uh, Kippur, uh, Sukkot, uh, everything. And the last, Pesach, of course, and the last holiday is uh, Sukkah, and they sit in the Sukkot, Ki Sukkot Toshavti et B'nei Yisrael, it's in Sefer Vayikra Perechav Gimal, and then it ends by Daber Moshe Mo'adeh Hashem B'nei Yisrael. These are the holidays, ending with Sukkot. Now we go to chapter 24. Of course, you know, don't give too much credence to the chapters. The chapters were made up by the Goyim, the chapters, when we say Perech Avdalet, Perech and the Christians made the chapters up. So it doesn't mean too much to us. The next person, right after Sukkot, Sabbat B'nei Yisrael, command the peoples, V'yikru Elecha Shemen Zayit Zach, take Shemen Zayit, Katit Lamaor, Le'alot Netamit, light the menorah. What in the world is lighting the menorah doing in Parashat Emor? Lighting the menorah is a Mishkan item. Mishkan items are already discussed in Tirumat Tetzaveh. All of a sudden, 
that Torah has nothing better to talk about in the middle of uh, uh, Parashat Emor, the Parashat of the holidays, it mentions Sukkot, and then it says the lighting of the menorah, which tells me there must be a connection between Sukkot and Hanukkah. Now, if, if there must be a connection anyway, because that's the next holiday. After Sukkot, the next holiday is, I mean, put Thanksgiving on the side. The next holiday is, uh, obviously, a Jewish holiday, is... Uh, is Hanukkah. So there is a connection. But the question is, what is the connection? So I'd like to present uh, something that I spoke about in public in the past, but now I'd like to add a, uh, a cherry on the cake that I did not do that in public. So don't say, oh, I heard this already. You didn't hear the, the punchline that I came to say today. So let's 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 go back to Sukkot for a minute. Yes, we came to talk about Hanukkah, but if you want to understand Hanukkah, you need to understand Sukkot, because the DNA of Hanukkah and the DNA of Sukkot are the same, and that's why when we miss Sukkot that year, they made it up with Hanukkah. There is a connection between the two. So in order to understand Hanukkah, you need to understand Sukkot. Trust me. So now the question is like this. What are we commemorating on Sukkot? We're commemorating on Sukkot that when we came out of Mitzrayim, there was clouds of glory that were surrounding us in the Midbar. And uh, the clouds of glory were unbelievable stuff. Don't, don't minimize them. They were not just providing us shade during the day from the sun. They were providing us ventilation at night or heat at night, ventilation during the day, smooth the terrain so we could walk, it pressed our clothes, it shined our shoes, it served as a buffer against enemy attack. So the Adonikavod were really uh, an, amazing, an amazing item. And uh, the tour asks a question. So if that's the item that we're commemorating, sitting in the sukkah, the Adonikavod, well, when did the Adonikavod start? When we came out of Mitzrayim. Well, when did we come out of Mitzrayim? In the month of Nisan. So if you're making a holiday to commemorate Ananekavot, shouldn't it be when it started in the month of Nisan? Basically, he's asking we should make Sukkot in Nisan. Now, I know, ladies, you're getting all nervous. Uh, another holiday in Nisan, it's enough to make for Pesach. We go crazy. So maybe we'll... <laughs> so you, you kill two birds. You clean the house uh, one time, and we'll add an extra day for Sukkot, and, and there you have it. I don't know exactly what they, what, what they were thinking, but that's the question. Why shouldn't Sukkot be in Nisan, when the miracle happened? It's an old question. He answers whatever he answers. Look over there, he gives an answer. But I saw a deeper answer based on a maharal. A maharal is so fascinating. The Gemara says in Berachot that there's a mitzvah when you pray in the morning, you must make a beracha right before the Amidah, Shahrit. And the Berakha is Baruch Hashem, Ga'al Yisrael. And then the Gemara says, you're supposed to make immediately Amidah. You have to be Sumech Geula Litfila. You're not allowed to make any separation or interruption between Geula, Ga'al Yisrael, and the Amidah. It has to be done uh, Tekef, Mamash, uh, next to each other. Good. So the Gemara has a question. Do you have to do also, the Gemara says yes. Okay, yes. 
Let's open the Sidur. If you open the Sidur, you'll see there's a Berachav Ga'al Yisrael. But we don't go right into the Amidah in Arbit. There's another Berachah that's called Hashkibenu. Hashkibenu, Avinu, Neshanom. So the Gemara asks, what do you mean? You're not Sumech Geodah Letfilah. Hashkibenu's there. There's an interruption. The Gemara answers, that's not a problem. Hashkibenu is considered Geula Arichta. It's an extension of Gaal Yisrael. It's an extension of the Geula. <laughs> Don't you wish we could answer all questions as easy as this? <laughs> we look at the Sidur and we see there's a paragraph uh, in between. So the, we, we, it looks like there's an interruption over here. It looks like there's something uh, interfering with Gaal Yisrael and Amidah. And the Gemara says, it's not. You know why? Because abracadabra, we're going to turn Hashibenu into an extension of Ga'al Yisrael. So therefore, Ga'al Yisrael doesn't end where you thought it ends. It actually ends a paragraph later. So actually, if you elongate the Geula, eventually it's going to meet up with the Amidah. And that's what it does in Arbit. We thought that there's a gap. And the Gemara closes the gap by calling Hashkibenu Geula Arichta. And as a result, it's next to each other. Imagine that. Now, what does it mean? I mean, to, to, to the eye, it seems Ga'al Yisrael is finished and Hashkibenu starts. Nobody ever thought for a second that this is a continuation of Ge'ulah Hashkibenu. The Mahalal comes along and says something so elegant and so sweet. He says the following. He said, when God redeemed us from Mitzrayim. Now that was an amazing event. To take us out of Mitzrayim is incredible. Logically speaking, it was a prison that there would be no way to escape from. Paro had black magic, and he had all this uh, you know, voodoo, that there was no way to, spirit. everything was locked. Everything was, you were under a, a spell. Uh, the, only Hashem was able to Redeem us, like we say, Ani velo malach, Ani velo saraf, memitzrayim, gealtanu, Hashem elokenu. It was an incredible miracle. But Paro and the Egyptians, they were skeptical because they were saying, all right, God was able to take them out of Mitzrayim. But now what? I mean, now I think the bigger challenge is, how do you take three million people into the Midbar, where there's no water, the, uh, the elements in the Midbar are quite inhospitable for human uh, you know, living. It's hot in the day. It's freezing at night. Guess what? I, I was in the Sahara Desert. Th- there's no kiosks over there in the middle of the desert. There's no vending machines you can buy tuna fish sandwich. There's nothing there. So wh- where are you going to eat? And even if you find a vending machine, there's not enough tuna fish sandwiches for three million people three times a day. So how are you going to feed all these people, how are you going to hydrate all these people? And by the way, if you ever saw the desert, the terrain, the topography is so complicated, so difficult to traverse, it's impossible to maintain the Jewish people even for one day in the Midbar. We have, we, 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 we have a hard time getting on a plane for three hours without a bag of food. Just, and we're going to food. We're coming for food and going to food. And we have to have a whole bag of food with us on the way, just in case it's a 10-minute delay. What are we going to eat? And over here, you're going into the Midbar. You can imagine. So the odds are that maybe God could take them out of Egypt, but 
The question is, how is he going to sustain that ke'ula? Let me say it in the way the Maral in English. Maral says, the redemption is the event. And then the 40 years in the Midbar is a continuation of that event. That's the process. The process of Geulah is not a one-second process. You must maintain the Geulah. Because just to take the Jewish people out of Egypt and they die of dehydration the next day, what type of Geulah is that? So Geulah needs to be maintained. Which means, it's, if you think that Geulah is just a one-day one event, okay, that's, 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 you're right. But it has to have a, uh, a continuation. And therefore, says the Rav, this is so beautiful, when we say the Berachav Ga'al Yisrael, that's referring to the event when we came out of Mitzrayim. Hashkivenu is Ge'ula Arichta, because that's referring to the process. Like we say in the Berachav Hashkivenu, uh, we say in Hashkivenu, V'asir Bimenu, Deber, Chereb, Ra'a, Ra'a, V'yagon, Mashit, Magifa, all the things that are usually uh, 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 available, unfortunately, in the Midbar. Pestilence, hunger, famine, uh, uh, a pandemic, magefa, plagues, all these things are in the... And what happened? Hashkibenu represents what happened after the day of Geulah. And therefore, Hashkibenu is considered Geulah Arichta because it's referring to the process that God brought us to. You understand? It's not a... Gibbala just trying to get out of a question by saying, oh, it's an extension of the Gibbala. No, it really is. With this, he explains something beautiful. The two holidays of Pesach and Sukkot. Pesach commemorates the event. The event. However, Sukkot, which is the Anane Kavod, represent the process, which is a different holiday. Which means, okay, you took us out on Pesach, but now what? To where? To, 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 a, to, to a Midbar. A place of snakes and scorpions. A place that you, a human cannot live even for a small amount of time. And God gave us Ananik Kavod. It's a different holiday. And if you want to celebrate process, says the Maral, there you would want to celebrate it the furthest, the furthest away from the event. Because the further you are away from the event, the greater the miracle that God can sustain us for a longer time. So therefore, when is Sukkot? It is on the calendar. Look at the calendar. Here, the 15th of Nisan. The furthest distance from 15th of Nisan is the 15th of Tishri. If, 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 uh, if Sukkot would be any later, it would be closer to Pesach. <laughs> Therefore, it's the furthest distance away on the calendar. The 15th of, of, of Tishri, the most you're going to go away is what? Six months. And therefore, on, on purpose, Pesach represents event of Geulah, and we could call Sukkot Geulah Arichta. That represents the fact that God took us to the Midbar, and six months later, so to speak, we were still therefore, when the rabbis, when the Torah was looking to make a date for this holiday, the most miraculous time to make that is the longest time away from the event that we were able to live. Now, based on this, I can explain even deeper. The Beracha of Ga'al Yisrael would represent Pesach. And Hashkibenu can represent Sukkot. And that's why, what does it say in Hashkibenu? Ufros alenu sukkat shelomecha. In Sukkot, 
Why is Sukkot mentioned in Ashkivenu? Because there's a relationship between Ga'ad Yisrael and Ashkivenu. So now you understand what Sukkot is. Sukkot is the extension of Geulah. Well, if that's the case, I saw from one of the great rabbis and great authors, I recommend his books, Rabbi Emanuel Bernstein. He's a... Uh, one of the masters of our generation, my opinion. His father, Alaba Shalom, was, uh, was the master of Derash in a beautiful, eloquent way. So he has, a, he has a Derash. And he says that if, if Sukkot represents the extension of, uh, of Geulah, well, Hanukkah is similar. But Hanukkah represents the extension and the extension of galut, of exile. And he explains. They have a similar, a similar element. When God made the redemption for the Jewish people, he had to sustain it. And when God brings an exile to the Jewish people, it has to be sustained as well. Uh, and by the way, don't think it's any less miraculous to sustain the Jews in exile it's just as big as miracle of sustaining the Jews from the redemption of Mitzrayim. And we go on and explain. For the Jews to survive in exile, I mean, look what's happening over here. You have the problem of assimilation and you have the problem of annihilation. And in this last exile, which is the longest of the exiles combined, we've gone through both. It's... We're just oscillating from one to the next. One generation, it's extermination, and the next generation, it's assimilation. But either way, they're getting us from the right and from the left. And therefore, for God to maintain the Jewish people during Galut is no less miracle than maintaining the Jewish people at a time of Geulah. Just like Geulah needs to have a process, Galut also needs a process. Otherwise, there's not going to be any, any Jews left. So when did this process begin? So he says it began in the second temple. And here we go back to our chapter. I told you from the Gemara and Yoma, the second temple was uh, noticeably different than the first temple. And we saw that there wasn't Shekhinah there, there wasn't presence, there wasn't prophecy. And the question is why? Why couldn't God bring all these if you're rebuilding the second temple, so like they say in Hollywood, take two and bring everything back. Why was there certain things that were absent? And the Mephashim saying, so I saw it brought down in Sfarim, it's a new way of looking at the second temple. The second temple was not necessarily the time of redemption. The second temple's purpose was, was to prepare us for exile. It was the preparation for exile. What do I mean to say? Exactly. The second of the reason why it didn't have all these things because it was not a moment of Geulah, the second Beit HaMikdash. The second Beit HaMikdash is under the assumption that the Jews are going to be in exile for 2,000 years and they need a preparation to survive it. So what happens? Comes the Anshikanes, the Geulah, in the second temple and all of a sudden they start to establish certain, uh, certain norms now, new norms that will carry the Jewish people into the exile. The first Mishnah Perkei Avot, 
הם אמרו שלושה דברים. העמידו תלמידים הרבה. We need to go back to establish yeshivas where we teach many students Torah. And all of a sudden the men of the Great Assembly are promoting Torah study to a great degree. Because they know that once the temple is destroyed and the Jews go into exile, if they're not going to build into the system of Bnei Yisrael a, uh, 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 um, a, an attraction to building yeshivas and having Torah there, you won't have anything. By the way, today, that you see that we have many yeshivas and that we have many students, that's only as a result of what the men of the Great Assembly did during the Second Temple. They established us into the system of Klai Yisrael, preparing us for Galut. Ha'amidu Tamidi Marbe is a manifestation of that takana of the coming true. Second thing they said, Asu Siyagla Torah. Asu means make fences for the Torah. And it was in those generations of the second time where all the fences started to come. All the rabbis started to make decrees to preserve Shabbat, to preserve uh, us assimilating. You can't drink their wine, you can't eat their bread, mukseh, all the laws of, 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 of what you're allowed to do and not. Extra decrees that were never around. Because they knew that when you live amongst the nations of the world, if you're not going to have fences, so it's going to be very, very uh, easy to, to fall in. Now what happens? The last 180 years, the Greeks come. The Greeks come at this point over there, and their main, uh, one of their main uh, ideologies was, they didn't believe in anything metaphysical. Metaphysical means supernatural. Uh, the Greeks are very rational. Uh, they believe in physical, metaphysical, no, physical, yes. The body, uh, you know, the... Uh, all uh, uh, corporal uh, 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 items, nothing spiritual. And one of the things that they promoted amongst the Jewish people, they made the Jews write on the, uh, on the horn, Beked and Ashur, on the horn, they made them write, You have no share with the God of Israel. You claim that you're connected, there's no connection, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no connection, there's no transmission. If there is a God, he's up there, you're down here, there's no, there's no link. And this is what they were indoctrinating the Jewish people to say, there's no connection between the God upstairs and the Jew downstairs. So don't come along and say, he's thinking about you and he's worried about you. And they had what to rely on because the Greeks came, look at the second temple. There's no prophecy. The fire stopped coming down from the heaven. There's no more Odin Vitumim. So they used the second temple's uh, uh, items that were missing to prove God has forsaked you and, and, and God has left you. Maybe there was a connection in the first temple. Well, that was your grandfather. But now you have reached such a level, the point of no return. God, has, even when he's building his temple, he's not coming back. It's an empty house. It's a hollow structure. There's no Shekhinah here. Like the Pasuk says, when we pray to God uh, uh, in this Pasuk, Lishkon Kavod Barsinu, bring the Kavod back to our, to our land. And why did they make us write it on the horn? On the horn? Why don't you write it on your, on your doorpost? I saw once because all the days they didn't have baby bottles. When a baby wanted to drink the milk, what did they do? They take a horn, like a shofar, and they put the milk in it, 
and they would drink from there. So they wanted to indoctrinate the babies, the kids, when they were drinking their, their milk when they came home from school, and they're sucking the bottle in. They saw it on the... This was, this was the, the kavanah. Anyway, this would be a terrible way to go into Galut, believing that God has forsaken us and God has left us. So right at the end of the second Beit HaMikdash, Bore Olam needed to do something that was very uncharacteristic of the second temple. Of course, in the second temple, you did not see open miracles. You did not see things that were metaphysical and supernatural. And all of a sudden, in the second temple, at the end of it, when the Greeks were finally ousted, we come into the Beit HaMikdash, and all of a sudden we start to see uh, uh, um, uh, traces of the first temple. We take some oil, and we put it in the menorah. Okay, assuming we had enough for the first night. But nobody thought it would last more than one night. And all of a sudden, we start to see that the oil doesn't dwindle. And every time we pour it into the menorah, it's lasting. And the people are going crazy. And that's the indication from God that the Greeks are wrong. And I know exactly what's going on with my people. And I have a direct connection with my people. And I love my people. And as a bond, and as a result, that already prepares us for Galut. That, that's the last message, like you mentioned with the Kiruvim. This is the last message that God says, I'm connected with you. Now that you got that lesson, now that the temple is going to uh, ultimately be destroyed, but every year when we're lighting the Hanukkiah, we're reminded of that moment on the way out that God revealed himself as us, even at this low level, but I'm still with you. Now, f- follow this for a minute, because this, this is a subtle point. We don't have a holiday commemorating the construction of the second Beit HaMikdash, which I find you know, kind of amazing. I mean, it must have been a great day when they built the second Beit HaMikdash. Come to think of it, we don't, even, we don't have a holiday even commemorating the first Beit HaMikdash's construction. There's no holidays uh, related to Beit HaMikdash. But there's one. When we re-inaugurated the second Beit HaMikdash, after it was defiled by the Greeks, and we came back and we made Hanukkah Tamizpah, which is a re-inauguration, that's a holiday. And I'm asking a question. First Beit HaMikdash, no holiday. Building up the second Beit HaMikdash, no holiday. Inauguration of the second, which means after it was temporarily out of order, when we re-inaugurated after the Greeks were ousted, holiday called Hanukkah. And I'm asking the question, why? And the answer is because that is going to prepare us for the next 2,000 years. The events that took place at the re-inauguration are the events of the miracle of the dead. That God's presence came down in a supernatural way and we saw that the Shekhinah does not leave. And even at a low point, even the Jews were at a low point, at, at, at the Greeks, 99% of the people assimilated. The Hellenists, remember the Hellenists? They all became uh, uh, dis- disenfranchised. They, they, they moved out of the religion. And only a few Hashmonaim and a couple of religious families remained. And Amman says we were this close to uh, spiritual oblivion. But at that point, God said that even at such low points, I will never leave you in the miracle of Hanukkah. And therefore, back to my point, is there a connection between Sukkot and Hanukkah? Absolutely. 
Sukkot represents how God sustains us after a redemption. And Hanukkah represents how God sustains us during an exile, after an exile. And therefore, after the destruction of the Bethlehem, we need God's ability. And look at, look at and I, my, my opinion now, and I saw it down in Sefarim, so I can say it. The fact that God sustained us in exile might even be a greater miracle. There was one rabbi called the Ya'abetz, and he said, my opinion, the fact that the Jewish people were able to survive exile for so many years, both physically and spiritually, is a greater miracle than the splitting of the sea. Now, splitting of the sea, to us, that's the best, greatest miracle that ever happened. But he's saying, look, look, look what happened in 70 years of Galut Bavel. In 70 years already, the whole place assimilated. So if, if this is not 10 times, this is not 20 times, this is almost 30 times longer than Galut Bavel. So you'd assume if we, if we almost got lost in 70 years, then we surely should have got lost in 2000 years. And we're, and we're still here sitting in the well, learning Tehillim, reading old commentaries, uh, dressed modestly, talking to God. I don't know what we're doing. We're, we're, we're still here. We're still Jewish. They didn't kill us physically or spiritually. And that already is the uh, maintenance of the Jew during Galut. And therefore, what Sukkot is to Geulah, Hanukkah is to Galut. And therefore, I don't want to say it, but just like Sukkot would be Geula uh, Arichta, Hanukkah would be Galut Arichta. It's the it's the extension of of and and that Galut actually probably starts during the Second Temple. That's already the beginning of the Galut because already we started losing some of the reception and some of the connections. But that was actually the preparation in order to survive the long trip that we would have. That we are clearly almost at the end. So it's a very very reassuring holiday. Somebody said that. But Rabbi, we're commemorating a holiday, but we're not really commemorating it exactly because, my point, on Pesach, they ate matzot, we eat matzot. Probably the same matzot that they ate. At least it tastes like it. The same matzot that they ate. Uh, so it's, it's an exact commemoration. They sat in huts, physical huts, let's say. So we built the sukkah. Most of our holidays in the olden days, we slaughtered Korban Pesach. Exactly the way they did it. Lighting the menorah, it's not exactly the way they did it because, I mean, we're commemorating the miracle, but we have enough oil. Guess what? I have enough oil for all eight days already in my house. I probably have enough oil for the next, I don't know, 80 days. So we're lighting, but nobody's, you know what the real miracle would have been? If they filled the water. Everybody go to the store, and during these eight days, a miracle's going to happen. Just take one jug of oil, and you're going to see. Only these eight days a year. It's going to last, and you're going to really commemorate it. Like, but it's really not a real commemoration. You're doing like a charade of, you know, zechet, what happened. Everybody has a lot of oil, and we fill it more than a half hour. It's lighting so long the whole night. So what's, what's exactly the commemoration? So I'll tell you the commemoration. There's, there's something that we're commemorating. There's a certain light of the menorah which is the greatest miracle. And it's not the lights of the menorah, but it's the one that's lighting the menorah. That's the miracle of Hanukkah. Not the lights, the lighter. The fact that he's still here. <laughs> and we know that the Zohar Kadosh says that a person's neshama is a ner. 
You ever see on the yard site they light a candle? Because then the and therefore we're coming and saying, you are the miracle of Hanukkah. The person is the miracle. The fact that this flame is still burning, the fact that the Jew is still alive, the fact that he's still lighting the menorah, that is indeed, he should have extinguished a long time ago. The Jew should have been far gone. And the fact that people still go to their window at sunset and they sing the three blessings with their family, the, the lights of the menorah are the Jews. That's the light, and that is, that is just as miraculous as the light of the... I mean, to me, it's even a bigger miracle. Uh, okay, the fact that oil could last, that's God's business. But the fact that the Jewish soul is able to survive after all these years, that's our business. That's free will. And that is the greatest miracle of all. So you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't d- deny, only pay attention to the lights that are in front of you in the menorah. You have to look at the lights that are behind the menorah. And that's the real... Not only the physical nerot, but the spiritual, which are the people that actually survived. And therefore, we celebrate an eight-day holiday every year to remember Sukkot. Because just like Sukkot is the maintenance of a redemption, Hanukkah and the miracle of what happened in times of the Greeks reminds us, I'll never leave you, God says. And you'll always exist, even through the worst of times. And that carries us through the final exile. And that is the a prayer that we say at the end of this chapter when we say, Gam Adonai Yitena Tov, eventually God should bring us to the Tov, which is Ahara Tov Azeb and Lebanon, which is the third temple, and our land should start to produce its fruit, which is an indication when you start to see the land of Israel producing its fruit, you know Mashiach is coming. And if anybody has been in Israel recently, you see all the vineyards and you see all the fruit. For years the land was on strike and all of a sudden now it's one of the most fertile regions in the Middle East. And now you start to come along and say that that must mean that God will uh, walk in front of us in righteousness and he will prepare for us the footsteps of Mashiach. Amen.